0: The Ziggler Show comes from the legacy of Zig Ziegler and brings together personal and professional growth, business success, and faith. I'm your host, Kevin Miller. In this episode, the best drug to turbocharge you. A drug is a substance that causes a change in one's physiology or psychology. So I'm taking liberty in calling rest a substance, but there's just nothing stronger for positively changing your physiology or psychology for the better. If you want an athlete To kill it at a competition, you have them rest the day before, right? You don't run them ragged. When you want to perform well on a given day, how do you treat yourself the day before, the week before, and even further, of course? I mean, in the workplace, we treat ourselves more like indentured servants who slog it out each day at a low level rather than highly prized top performers. And that's the purpose of this episode. So I'm bringing you a doctor a board certified internal medicine physician. She's a work life integration researcher, a TEDx speaker, bestselling author and international wellness expert. She's been on the Dr. Oz show and a guest with really all the big names. Well, her focus, getting you rested and recovered physically and mentally so you can actually have top performance and output. Well, this show will make you want to rest and rest in the right ways. It's not just sleep, okay? Dr. Son. Dalton Smith. She's my guest. And friends, I went after her to get this message on the show. I wanted to learn from her as well as bring the message to you. Her new book is Sacred Rest. Recover your life, renew your energy, restore your sanity. I just took a weekend following her counsel in the area that I most needed it to get myself on track for better performance. And, I, and I'll tell you, I'll divulge it was the mental area. So you'll have to hear the show to understand what that is. You're gonna really appreciate the show. I highly encourage you to take Sandra's rest quiz to see where you need help. And you can check out her new book and see all she has to help you with by going to I choose my best life.com. I choose my best life.com. Well, Sandra is going to join us right after I let you know what else we have for you and uh, let you know about some great products and services. Well, Sandra, as I said, I mean, with anybody who's on the show, any guest, I'm curious about how they got to where they are now, though. I got to admit that with people in certain professions like the medical field, that's a big one. That's not, you know, when you, when you hit the, uh, after high school or during that time, looking at what you're going to do, that's a biggie, uh, on the list out of all of them, not to the elevate it is more important, but it's a big commitment. What got you pursuing the medical field?
1: Well honestly I love science I think that was probably one of the big things but I always had an interest for for knowledge about life and death my mother died soon after childbirth and so that has always been something that's I think's been in the back of my mind really you know what happened could it something had been done to prevent it you know what is it about medicine that you know, allows for some people to get well and some people who don't ever get well. And so I've always had that curiosity. And I think that really took me deep into the sciences. And as I stated, I can't recall ever loving anything more than I've loved the sciences, biology, chemistry. I, my major was biochemistry, which is probably the hardest science to, to get a major in it. But I I just love all the details.
0: How early on did you know you wanted to pursue med school?
1: I think I was about five. I remember a long time ago, old board game. I'm going to date myself. They used to have this game called Operation. Oh, yeah. You try to take the tweezers and you pull the bone. (laughs) <laughs> so that's kind of where I started. And I was hooked from that moment on.
0: Oh, that's beautiful. So, you know, for you looking at, as we, again, we have so many people who are in professions, maybe they're pursuing another one. They want to launch a business. and You're looking at the decision when you made that decision as a kid. Well, I get for you, maybe then it was early enough that it was just always understood for some families, you know, it's, Hey, they're going to go to med school. Not a big deal for some other families. That was a huge decision to try to make. Where did it fit? Fit for you as far as a decision for your own, you know, finances or your families? Was that not a big deal or was it a big decision?
1: Well, I knew that I wasn't going to get a free ride or just kind of have this handed to me. I grew up in a situation where, as I say, my mother died at childbirth. Yeah. So I was raised by my grandmother. I knew that I needed to focus on scholarships. I knew that I needed to be real serious about my grades. know, I was one of those students who I, I actually kept up with my GPA <laughs> from a very young age because I, I realized early on that I was going to need to have some assistance to actually pay for that. Medical school is not cheap, and, I, and it gets more expensive as we go. Yeah. And so I understood that there was going to be a level of commitment there where I was going to either have to take on some, some debt to do that, or I was going to have to allow myself to be kind of in a situation to make that more amendable for me. And so what I did was something called National Health Service Corps. It's, um, many people have never heard of it, but I, in medical school, agreed to go to a place of the highest, uh, health deficit places where they desperately needed a doctor. Wow. And if they covered my four years of medical school, I would give them four years of my time in the national service wow. corps in these health shortage areas. And who knew, you know, so in my head, I was thinking, okay, I'm going to be in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> you know, for four years, Yeah. but you'd be amazed the places that were having the greatest health shortages were places like the inner cities. It was wow. places like small tent rural cities where no doctors wanted to come because it wasn't financially beneficial to come. Yeah. And so I actually went to my national health location, which was Anderson, Alabama, and I have been there for 20 years. It was the place that I fell in love with best and all over again because it wasn't after that obligation was met. I just love the area and the people, and I and I really found my place here.
0: I was not aware of that, and is that program something still in effect today for people who are listening and think, "Man, that sounds really great." Is that still an opportunity for people?
1: It still is, but you do have to say that you're agreeing to go where the area of greatest need, and that's the thing. You know, Anniston, Alabama, is this tiny town uh, outside of Birmingham, so it's not like you're away from big cities. Atlanta's an hour and a half; Birmingham's another hour away. But there were just no doctors in that area it's an old military base yeah and so area so people had moved out and so they were desperately in need of help
0: that's amazing I actually know that town I was uh, a, a professional cyclist in my past life and did a oh, ra- yeah. did a race there <laughs> I, I I really think I can almost uh, think through the course that we had there yeah. but I, I know I know the area I would have come down from Nashville Tennessee. Uh, direction. Well, now I appreciate that because as I mentioned, my business partner, who a lot of folks know, Dr. Randy James, he's my co-host on my other podcast, the true life podcast. And he went into the air force, same deal. He, they paid for everything. And then he gave them, I think he gave them more than four years. It was quite a while uh, that he, you know, served there before going into his practice, but that was a way Mm -hmm. to not have the medical bills. Well, you share a story early on, and for the folks watching on Facebook, I'm gonna hold the book up, Sacred Rest. We're gonna be getting into the details of this specifically. And you share a story early in the book about a woman in a car accident. And you cite asking her uh, as as time went on how she felt about the wreck. And you actually said and pressing on her to get from her. Did she see the accident as something that had purpose and not just wasn't just a happenstance occurrence out of the cosmic blue? And I'm thinking, okay, so I have a good amount of exposure in the doctoral world. That's not usually a primary focus from a doc to be asking questions of that nature. And so I know you are a person of faith, but was that a component as you began medical school, your your faith and walking that out? Did you have to grow into that? Because that stands out.
1: Yes, I definitely had to grow into it. Faith and medical school do not go hand in hand. If anything, they are They are almost. I almost felt like for a while my faith was trying to be stripped from me uh, in medical school. There was a lot of conversation about don't pray with patients, don't share this with patients, don't share that. So uh, you know there was a lot of freedom with coming out of (laughs) out of medical school and kind of getting a chance to really see what kind of doctor you want to be and what feels really organic to you. And it did not feel organic to try to take a mind, body, and spirit and strip the spirit out of it and say, well, now make it whole <laughs> yeah. because that doesn't function like that. People are not just individual physical bodies. There's more to them. And so it wasn't easy. I'll be honest with you. You know, when I first got started with this, there I was in a medical practice in a group where there were a lot of people who did not have similar faith beliefs that I had. Yeah. And so we had to kind of get an understanding of, what was going to be acceptable? How do we not cross lines? And it really started with just giving people options. I would have in my waiting room copies of something like the daily bread or guidepost yeah. right alongside times and women's day and every other magazine that's out there. And so people had an option. They didn't you know, have to choose my faith based, uh, you know, here, um, magazines that i provided they could choose something else but what i found was a large number of them did choose those options and you know i found that people are more open to faith discussions when they are in a physician's office because they want something more than just a pill we've become that society where we toss a pill at it and we say well that's got to fix it and it yeah. doesn't most of the time. Yeah. There's a lot of lifestyle and you know modifications that have to happen with people mo- emotionally, physically, spiritually for them to feel better. And I think that's just the direction that we really need to start going into.
0: I agreed. I mean it's such a vulnerable place to be, such a level playing field. So if you have somebody in there, doesn't matter the gender, the age, the socioeconomic level, the profession, they come in there and they are you know, in so many ways naked before you, you are the provider. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I see that it's such a, it's such a weighty position. Of course, we see the good and bad of that. The folks like you who recognize that, and we've seen it abused. I think everybody's, if they haven't witnessed it in real life, they've seen it portrayed on a movie or TV show somewhere, uh, you know, for you though. So yeah, as you look at your own faith amongst that, you say, so I, and I get that that wasn't your medical school. Wasn't a great ground for that. It came later. Your own journey of your own relationship in your faith, though, has that been longstanding from your youth, just as your vocational uh, desires have been?
1: It started in my youth. So I had my my great grandmother, uh, the type of woman who prayed every night and was very, very open about her faith beliefs. I didn't share those faith beliefs for a very long period of time, uh, and that is because I couldn't. Uh, I couldn't I couldn't share them. I had so much pain and um so many things I was dealing, I think, just with my mother's death as a child. Yeah. So I couldn't share that. I I didn't believe what she believed. And so it was probably into my teen and early twenties that I started to really kind of grow in my own faith mm-hmm. journey and started to kind of look at things. And and honestly, a big part of that was medical school because You start seeing death on a different level when you're holding someone's hand and you can't help them. I mean that starts hitting you a little bit different than you know. Oh, you know you hear on the news, 20 people died uh, from something, and because you don't know them, you have you don't have a face or any type of you don't know what their voice sounds like. You can put a little bit of distance there. Yeah. I didn't expect medicine to make life and death so real. I know that's probably odd to say, but I didn't expect that (laughs) to make it so real. Because I always, in the back of my mind, I think, growing up, was some part of me always felt, well, this is the more like a business relationship. Yeah. you know, I, they're, I'm the doctor, they're the patient. This is a business relationship. We exchange funds for a service. but this this wasn't a business relationship when it when it got down to it. These were people that I cared about. And particularly as I became a physician in my own practice, as I stayed at twenty years in, a, in the same location, these were friends. These were people that I, that I knew what their, their spouse liked for dinner. Cause they come, tell me they come tell on their husband who had the thing they weren't supposed to be eating. And, you know, they, I'd see the pictures of the grandkids. And so it no longer was this business relationships. These were relationships. And I think I didn't expect that. And I started to notice that very early on in my medical career.
0: Well, and I, I want people to, if, you have, if you're hearing this with interest, uh, it was back in episode 743 that we had Dr. Lee Warren uh, on the show, and he is a neurosurgeon. And we had a similar discussion. He said, man, amongst my peers, faith, walking that out is not the most popular thing. You know, and on that, you told a story in the book about a patient coming to you, another lady who Mm -hmm. was aware of your, uh, she didn't, she didn't come to you. She actually had a chip on her shoulder. You talked about and told the story of, but she knew of your faith perspective. So obviously Mm -hmm. it's gone more into, not that you lead with a fish and a cross necessarily, but you have become known for that. And so I'm going to assume you have people seek you out specifically for that. Mm -hmm. And as in this lady's case, you have some that maybe don't, or they, now you said in her case, she came, I think you said it was a recommendation of a friend. So she did come see you. She had trust, you had credibility, but she was wary of that. Where do you find that from your patient load? Are most of them, uh, open to that? Or are they, uh, that's a good term to use wary of it.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question, because I think most of them, when they first show up, they are aware that that's a part of who I am. You know, one of the things I talk about um, is something called emotional rest, which is basically just being very authentic about who you are. And so it is not being authentic for me at this point in my life to not have my faith be a part of anything that I do. But uh, with that being said, I don't have a cross on when you walk through my office or scriptures on, even scriptures on the wall. Um, I am af- aware that a lot of people do not have my same faith belief. Yeah. And so what I tend to do with patients is I let them know that this is what I believe, but it's an, and it's an opportunity for you to go deeper when you're ready. Yeah. Because I believe that for many patients, it's honestly, it's no different than when I talk with someone about cigarettes, uh, like getting off their cigarettes. It's like I have to judge and, and have a conversation with you about are you ready for the next step? Yeah. Because some patients who come with to me, they're ready to have a deeper conversation than where they've been with their physician. Maybe their past physician looked at the computer the whole time and didn't even ask them a question, <laughs> you know, didn't have any type of conversation about the things outside of medicine. Or I'm asking about their relationships with their spouse and their kids and, you know, what do they do for fun and how do they keep their creativity up? I'm asking all of these things that they are not familiar with the doctor asking them. So they're open to that. But then if I mention, you know, a specific faith belief, they're yeah. like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. <laughs> Wasn't ready for that quite yet. So I think it's important just to have kind of th- that open conversation to see where people are at. And what we do is an intake. We do kind of an intake to find out. Where people are, what they believe. It actually asks some general questions about, you know, you're you're welcome to share any faith beliefs that you have. People leave it blank. I know they don't want to speak about it. So, yeah. so I don't push it on them at that point.
0: Well, I, I want people to hear. We spend we have a lot of people who are in the arenas of coaching, consulting counseling and Tom Ziegler and I on the shows that we co-host together, a lot of times talk about the business, the profession, the pursuit of, I'm going to say coaching in this aspect and life coaching comes up a lot. And I am a, an advocate from a branding, positioning, marketing standpoint. I'm not a fan of the term life coach. I think it's too broad. People don't, uh, they don't believe it. No different than if you said, Hey, I'm a doctor. I can fix anything. You got cancer. You got a foot problem, mouth problem. I got you covered. We all know that we go to the specialist. We go to the dentist. Mm-hmm. We go to the neurosurgeon. We go to the, uh, you, know, you know, the podiatrist, or, you know, whoever it may be uh, for that. And yet, so with that said, I'm a fan of the niching and you are, you know, you have your perfect your, your area of specialty. But to do it well, here's what I heard you said and I, say, and I want people to hear that. To do it well, you are life coaching. And, and what I heard you say in essence is you don't know how to do what you do well without addressing the person as a whole. Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah. Yes. That's actually right. As a physician, I look at myself as I don't typically use the word life coach, but I can I can definitely see sure, that. Sure, I use my, sure. <laughs> but I, I really do use the word as a, as a teacher. Yeah. I, I come into the room with a patient with a mindset that I am there to to evaluate where they're at and then teach them a, a portion of what i know that is helpful i can't give them you know all of the medical school and everything else but a portion of what i know that can be helpful and then try to give them a couple of practical next steps so that when they come back next time they're a little bit further in the journey than where they they started yeah so yeah so i could definitely see that as kind of a life coach mentality but that is what i do And, and whether the conversation is about you know, whether, how do we get their blood pressure down or their diabetes under control? Or how do we get them sleeping better at nighttime? That, that conversation is the same. Looking at where they're starting, you know, what are some of the toxic things you may be doing now? Discussing kind of the science and the scripture, if necessary, behind some of those things, yeah. and then giving some practical next steps.
0: Well, I love that. And I know amongst my friends who are doctors that, yeah, if you try to put them in a coaching definition, it usually feels like, oh, that's a minimization of what they do. I love it. That's the kind of doctor that I want, but I, I get that that's not often overlaid, but I love that you uh, address the concept of that, or, or the, I should mm-hmm. say the methodology, the, the wholeness of that. You are listening to The Ziegler Show in this episode with Dr. Sandra Dalton Smith on rest. Next, I ask her about a term she coined called chronic rest deficit. I think you'll resonate in at least one of the areas she covers, if not more. We'll get right back to it after I share some great products and services with you. Well, you know, coming to your book, Sacred Rest, you talk in there about. And I don't. I, I guess my question, first off, is if this—if you coin this, or if I've just missed it. But because I, I love the term, chronic rest deficit. And as I say that, folks, I want you to hear—we're about to dig into it. That she's not talking just about sleep; she's talking about the, that in the areas of, and I'll list them off real quick: physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, social, sensory, and creative. These are areas of rest. But you're saying that we, as a whole, uh, have a chronic rest deficit, and. Did did you? Is that something that you feel like you coined?
1: I did. That that whole seven types of rest, um, someone asked me before, you know, I've never seen creative rest. I'm like, yeah, if you Google it, I'm the only thing you're going to get that pops up. Because I think, um, because I was kind kind of pulled away into this niche in this small town, I was able to do what I love. I love research. And so, you know, I spent the first five years, you know, of, of my science career in research and labs, working with, you know, test tubes and all of this, you know, these instruments. And when I got pulled away to do spend my time here in Aniston, my research really became more research of people. Hmm. It's kind of more of a social type of research that I was doing. And I, I love that because now I was able to see people from every demographic every social economic status every race i mean you name it i would have someone with like a kindergarten education and in the next room i'm seeing someone who is like an attorney yeah (laughs) so it was wonderful to see the similarities and the differences and to be able to kind of work through because the, the reality was every one of them was coming to me with the same thing i'm tired I'm tired. I don't know how many times I heard that. I'm tired. And I'm like, you know, medicine says you need eight hours of sleep. And they come back 10 hours of sleep in and say, I'm still tired. And that's kind of when a lot of this started to flesh out, particularly when I burned out myself.
0: Well, so you talk about this and I want to hit on what I feel is a leading issue in regards to this, no different than our culture who upholds busyness you know if you're busy you must be important and you must have credibility we all have recognized that well I should say I hope we have recognized that we sure talk a lot about it on this show and on my other podcast about that and about how the the fallacy of that it used to be that the uh, the well-to-do, the prideful thing was I've got spare time. I'm not busy. And yet today we flopped that. Now you're busy. In the same way, and you hit on this in the book, we tend to see rest with that. It's not a credible aspect. You, know, you, you get more kudos for learning how to sleep on four hours a night and you keep charging along. And so before we dig into the, the realities of what brings rest or why we don't have it and what brings that, address that just the credibility aspect of it or the pride aspect or the shame aspect of rest because i'm seeing i hope i'm seeing that change i've talked about it on the show i average over i have a sleep tracker i average over eight hours of sleep a night but now i also check the quality of that okay how much of mm-hmm. that was light sleep deep sleep REM sleep whatever how do i feel and of course that's just i you know one area of Rest, but giving pride to that because yeah, I grew up cutting my teeth amongst the people who were talking about how they could work 20 hours a day and they kick butt, take names, and as you talk about, they're productive. They are doing. We don't need this being crap. We're doing.
1: hmm And that's who I who I started off that. Yeah, so I, I can totally that. relate to the person who says, you know, oh, rest is for the week, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I can totally relate to that because that's where I started. That's really was my mindset until I burned out. Well, heck that's medical school right there.
0: You you just said that is medical school, right? I mean, they, Yeah. yeah.
1: I mean, they honestly, yes. Residency. I mean, you work ridiculous hours. Fatigue is just part of it. And I think for many people, that is how we were trained. That's how we grew up. That's the culture that we started in was this culture that tired and fatigue and just, you know, burning it at both ends. That's the normal. And I think the problem, what, what really has kind of come out of that is now we're seeing kind of a, a generation that's coming up after that culture who is, who is even more toxic <laughs> than we were, yeah. who are, you know, the, with the emotional toxicity, with the mental health problems that come with a chronic rest deficit, with the relationship problems that come with a chronic rest deficit, and then just the physical, the body. The body's not meant to never be restored to always be kind of worn down. So we're seeing a lot of these things that are happening now because of that particular culture. And I love that there are so many um, sources now that are really starting to to to, to kind of come back against that mindset. Uh, There was an article that Fast Company did um, based on the book that where they focused specifically on are you getting the right kind of rest? And I, I love that because they put it in that their secrets of the most productive people section. And I think that that was very telling because that is that is the reality of it. People who are highly creative, highly productive, and they're able to produce with joy. Because I know a lot of people who are high producers, but they are not happy. Yeah. And they they don't smile and they don't have fun. And they're just kind of cranking it out without any pleasure. And I don't want to live like that. I did that for a long time. I don't want to live like that. I want to be able to, you know, have a successful career where I can still smile at the end of the day, and enjoy my family, and not be not be burned out when it's all said and done.
0: Didn't I see that you were a guest on uh, the show? I don't know, his podcast or what, with uh, Dave Asprey.
1: Yes, I I did a podcast show with him. Yeah, well, I want people to hear that.
0: So that's the bulletproof coffee guy, man. So you just think of him as a, you know, hard charging, kick butt, take names kind of guy. And I love that He said, yeah, obviously had you on the show. And he said, man, I learned things I did not know about rest. I mean, to me, it really lays out, I don't don't want to be negative about it, but almost a hypocrisy, hypocrisy. If I own a hospital, I want doctors who are, as that term goes, you know, kicking butt, taking names, sleep four hours a night, produce, produce, produce. (laughs) That's good for that's good for the bottom line. But then it comes to me and I'm sick. I don't, I'd rather you went and rest, take a day off get recharged and come, you know, work on me when you are at full capacity of your entire self. And it doesn't weigh out. Those things are at odds with each other. And so, yeah, we have this business culture and hospital medical is a business. It's the biggest expenditure in America that we have period is healthcare. And we have that production, high production going. And yet my gosh, yeah, I've, I've been, I've had kids, I should say, I've had kids in the hospital. I want the person working on them. That is, I don't want the somebody who's just put in 24 hour shift. I want somebody yeah, who's exactly. just come off the golf course or off of a retreat or from the spa, please to work on me. And and it is, it's the shift. How I, I would love to see you at the forefront of this shift of giving credibility and honor to the rested physician or anybody rested, not the strung out one who may seemingly produce a lot, but I'm going to say if they do, they're producing a lot at a shallower level than if they would come down and go deep.
1: That That is exactly it. And that is that is exactly the, the thing that I think we need to focus on. There are so many people who are producing out of their burned out state. And what would it look like oh, if they great. were producing out of their full state, where they are restored, where they're energized, where the creativity and their innovative abilities are at their maximum because that's the difference. And I, I, you know, there is there is a change that I think has already come, has happened. Um, a lot of the work I do now, I've actually had to back out of some of my medical practice activities because of the consulting and speaking work that I do now. Lots of hospitals have are starting to see, and I hate to say this, <laughs> But they tend to call me in after they've had a few physician suicides. Oh, wow. And I'm like, can we, can I, can you get me, can, can we have this conversation before we reach? No, no, you're them? asking them to be
0: preventative. <laughs> they don't do that. So,
1: so I, I love that they actually eventually say, you know, we need someone to come in and help our physicians and our team really not be so burned out and not feel wow. so depleted. Um, But I would love for them to do it, like I said, a few months before we get to that point, because the thing is, you know, particularly right now, medicine is at its highest capacity. So it's, and what I try to talk about in the book is not necessarily needing to go on vacations or anything like that, but how can we live a lifestyle that is well-rested? How can we do things throughout our day that doesn't really zap all of our time, but keep us feeling restored? And there's some really simple things. Um, As you know, there's some really simple things I talk about in the book to restore in these different areas, because most of us don't need all seven restored at one time. There's like one or two critical rest deficits that we have. And if you focus on intentionally getting rest, rest, meaning restorative activity, not the cessation of activity, but restorative activities in that area of deficit, that's when you start feeling better. And that's when you start getting your energy and your motivation and your strength and all of those things back to do good work. You know, we want to do deep work. You can't do deep work when you're depleted.
0: Well, so deep work and I'll call out another episode. I don't have the number in front of me, but Cal Newport is the author uh-huh. of the book deep work. So we had him on, it's been this year, 2020. I don't know when it was If folks, you can type in the Ziggler show Cal Newport, but really great. But yeah, to do the deep work. I don't know if he gets on, on that topic of he's talking about getting rid of electronics and, and, and whatnot to, mm-hmm. to have time to do the deep work. I don't know of a better way for myself to do deep work than to focus on rest. So you just talked about vacation and you talk about it. I love it. Right in your book. I I just took a family vacation. We were gone for, I don't know, 10 days or so. It was a classic American vacation. We went (laughs) and we did a whole bunch of stuff. And we came back and I was depleted. I went right into finishing up a book proposal, actually, and uh, went on a getaway to do that. But I was focused on that. And I was, you know, I was kind of ramping myself up. I did some big mountain bike rides or whatnot. Came out of that and realized, I, I, I am not well. I, I'm cranky. It's all stuff you lay out in the book. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm cranky. I'm irritable. I feel like I'm excited about my work, but I just don't really have the bandwidth to do it. I'd rather just... Go veg out and do something. And that's not me. And so it's great timing then to look at your book. I'm going to go through this again. Physical. Okay, I get that one. That's the easiest one for me to address as far as what is actual rest physically. I'm very physically oriented. So, you know, exercise and nutrition and what is actually, you know, how is my sleep? But then when you get into what about mental rest, emotional rest? And I'm, it's curious to me that you even pulled that out because most people. I should most, I'll own that for myself. I would tend to just put that into mental, but you actually break it out. Then you have spiritual, social sensory, which I don't think I've ever seen put out there and creative was so curious to me too, because most of my work is creative. When I am not restful, when I'm not rested, it's the hardest thing. And I think I read that somewhere when you, I think it was in regards to sleep, but you might give it more depth than that. When you're not at rest, one of the first two things to go are creative thinking and critical thinking. Am I on track?
1: Yeah. And I think that's really important to, to differentiate because for most people, we, when we think of creative, we start thinking of like musicians and you know people who are artists, people who are doing stuff that we think of as creative. But what I find when people do my quiz, who do the rest quiz, and I get those results back, what I find is that business owners, CEOs, um, inventors, teachers, Professors, these are the people who have a creative rest deficit. And it's because they don't realize how being innovative and how even marketing to, you know, staying on the top of your in your field and in your 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 business, all of those things require a level of creativity and thinking outside of the box. Yes. And so when you're doing that on a regular basis, without ever thinking about how do I pour back into myself creatively, you become depleted. And so I love it when I sit down with a, and I'm doing like a coaching session or something with a business owner and they're like, you know, I've just, I can't think of any, I just can't think of how to connect with the audience anymore. I can't think of, you know, how to change this branding or this marketing. And I'm not a brander and I'm not a marketer. (laughs) That's not what I do. What I do is we look at how do we get the creativity flowing properly again? How do we get back to the place where you are filling back up your creative resources? And it's different for every person. It's very, um, it's very specific. And most people aren't aware of what it is that restores them creatively until they start thinking about it intentionally. For example, for some people, it could be as simple as um, certain colors. You know, the science and the research that I did related to that talked a lot about people who get creative rest around bodies of water, whether that's oceans or lakes or River, some people have it in the mountains. Other get it from actually watching um, like a symphony or listening to a symphony or what, looking at paintings in a museum. So it's really this allowing beauty that's already been creative, whether it's natural or man-made, to create something inside of you, to kind of unlock that awe and wonder and creative aspect of who you are. And that's different for every person. And so it's one of those things for many of us, we think, oh, well, that's not important. It's not important what the lock screen on my phone looks like or what pictures are in my office space or even if my office space is all brown and gray walls with no art at all. Because now we have these major companies who you'll see are painting walls orange and yellow (laughs) and doing all of these things to bring light and color into these workplaces because they have finally realized there's something to this creative rest that we all need.
0: I want to elevate that, uh, Sandra, because when you talk about that, we have a high am- amount in our audience of people who are business owners, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, artists, people doing their own things. And when you talk about it that way, I'm thinking, yeah, creativity, that's, that what I find myself desiring within the realm of what you just outlined is finding solutions to problems, making decisions, mm-hmm. And when I am not rested, which I just admitted, I'm at a, at a, at a bit of a state right now and I'm struggling with some uh, exciting things that are happening, but I need to kind of give an outline, give a structure and I need some creative ability and I'm struggling. So I'm just getting ready. My, my wife is searching right now. I think we're going to go away for about four days. And interestingly, our getaways are Water. That's where we go. Yeah. Now I live in the Rocky Mountains, and I could say is it's probably the most inspiring place. But I also just live here, so I haven't thought about it till you said that. Water, the ocean, what you know, rivers, whatever, are my other getaways. And maybe it's because it's the same kind of uh, design, awe, whatever. But it's different, and it opens up a different. It allows me to rest in a different way. Is that realistic?
1: It does. It does. And that's the thing about creative rest. I always tell people, do creative rest is one of those things you can't overanalyze. It simply is. You know when you're experiencing it because you, um, let me put it to you this way. You know you've experienced rest when you leave a situation better than how you entered into it. Okay. Work, you leave feeling depleted. (laughs) You feel like you've, you've left a portion of yourself there. You've drained some of yourself. Rest is restorative, so you leave feeling as if you've been filled up in some way. And so for many people to determine where they're experiencing creative rest is just that. Where are those locations, situations where you, after being in those environments, you're like, I just feel better. I can't explain it. You know, it's not rational. (laughs) I just feel better when I'm experiencing that. And for a large number of people, for whatever reason it is, it happens to be bodies of water. Well, I
0: want people to hear what you said at the beginning there, that that ultimately, whatever it is, it simply is. Uh, Because we so often try to justify, we're all listening to people who influence us, just like people are listening to you and I on this show right now. They're here to hear you, and they're going to hear, they're looking for, what should I do? What should I do? And for you to say, and, and to try to justify it as such, as opposed to say, you know, it simply is. We go into social groups and my wife is energized, restored, as you mm-hmm. would say. It brings her to life. I am depleted. I don't want to make any. I don't. Do I have to know? We, we tend to want to you know, find out why that is introvert, extrovert, all that kind of stuff. It just is. And to know that about myself. And so what gives you creative rest in this sense, if it's water, if it's the mountains, if it's you name some other things and to just be OK with that, that it simply is. I really appreciate when you, uh, mental and emotional, I do want to jump to that because again, it was of interest to me that you broke it out. Um, and of course I you know went through the book, but I want you to explain mm-hmm. that, that most people, myself included would tend to put the emotional aspect in there. So for you to pull it out fully and to separate mental rest from emotional rest, explain that.
1: Yes, well, mental rest, I think is the easiest way for most people to start thinking about it is what is filling up your, your cerebral space. So when you try to go to bed at night, are you going through your to-do list? Are you thinking about conversations you had earlier in the day? Are you kind of rattling off you know, new ideas? That's a kind of a sign of mental unrest. Your mind is just constantly jumping around from thought to thought to thought, and yeah. all of these things are happening but it's not necessarily processing your feelings about them. It's not necessarily processing what you think about yourself and your worth and your abilities, because that's an emotional aspect of that mental component. And they're different. So they're not the exact same thing. And so when people start thinking about emotional rest, emotional rest is the rest that we receive when we allow ourselves to just be very open and authentic about what we're feeling and, and what's going on in our lives. And for a lot of people, That's very difficult because if you are, particularly if you are the person who's in charge or you're in leadership in some way, there are probably very few people that you have that level of openness with Um, because I'll just use myself as an example. As the physician, I don't walk into the hospital and, you know, there could be someone who I've treated for 20 years going through something horrific. I can't walk in and start bawling. That's not gonna help them if I'm crying my eyes out. I'm not gonna be able right. to assist them in any way. And so there's a level of stress when you are having to kind of um, keep your emotions in check. And so if you're a business owner and your company might be going through something very difficult, you can't just go, you know, cursing out everybody in the office because you're ticked off. Yeah. You know, you're having to keep all of that in check. And so sometimes that we we call it. Um, it almost sounds like you're being inauthentic when you're kind of keeping those emotional emotions in check. For most of us, we call it being professional. We don't consider it being inauthentic. It's being professional. It's living up to what it looks like to be professional in that role. But there's a stress that goes with that. And I think most people don't think about that, the stress of professionalism. And because of that, many of us, we never process those feelings. And so you, you allow yourself to kind of keep it always hidden and always kind of under, under wraps. And the, the problem when you're always keeping your, your deepest feelings under wraps, it makes you feel like a portion of you is not acceptable yeah. to the rest of the world. Yeah. As if it's not okay just to really be me. It's almost like, what would they think if they really knew that, you know, I'm the CEO of the company and I'm afraid about this COVID thing. <laughs> you know, what would people think? And so it makes you start feeling like something's wrong with you. And that's when we start leading into different levels of mental health and mental illness because now you are not allowing yourself to discuss your emotions in a way that is healthy. Yeah, And we all need that. We all need to be able to discuss our feelings and our emotions with somebody, whether that's a trusted friend, a spouse, a counselor, a therapist, you name it, but we all need someone where we can can really let them see the true, kind of core of what's going on with us, and know that we're okay. It's okay if you're scared right now. It's okay if you're anxious. It's okay. There's you know you're, you're there's nothing wrong with you for having feelings. We just have to be able to walk through those feelings and not let them get to a point where they are toxic and detrimental to our own well-being.
0: Well, that's good. You're speaking right to me, so I'm getting my own counseling session here. Uh, I realize the benefit because but it's not. It's not a desire. Like my wife desires to share those things. I don't. I just assume, can we just, I just, I don't want to spend any more time in it. Can we not? But then knowing the reality of that, I, I want to ask you though, you know, in this aspect of the mental area of our mental rest, mental uh, exhaustion that we all deal with so much to give me your perspective. Cause it's one that's important to me on the difference between what I call relief versus well, in your sense, rest, relief versus real rest, which I'm gonna put under you know, recovery, renewal, recharging, rejuvenation, as opposed to relief. Now tonight, if I go home and kick my shoes off and grab a bag of chips and sit on the couch and watch Netflix, okay, that's some relief, not bad, but realizing that that is not going to renew me. That's not the rest that you're talking about. How do you, and I don't know if I if I missed it in the book, but how do you segment those and say, okay, this may seem like rest. It's not. What well, you do with sleep, mm-hmm. just because you sleep mm-hmm. eight hours, 10 hours, does not mean it's actual rest, uh, being restful. How do you take that into the mental rest aspect?
1: Yes, well, I call it escapism in the book. Because, okay, okay, good. Because really with mental rest, if you... And that's what a lot of people do. You know, that's you're not the only one who, <laughs> who kind of does that at times. And I think everybody does at some point. You flip on Netflix. You just try to zone out the world and you know, everything else that's going
0: escape on. is a great word. I don't, <laughs> I don't use that, but in truth, that is it. Sometimes I'll go home and that'll be the thing, my wife and I, and even the kids and I'll say, Oh my gosh, guys, you know, game night or talking about whatever, or I just, I just would rather not think about anything. Can we, you know, watch mm-hmm. Sherlock or, you know, whatever, whatever's going on. Okay. So uh, that's okay. But okay, go ahead. So at, outside of escapism is how do we rest?
1: yeah because with escapism you it's like a temporary like you mentioned it's temporary relief so you have this temporary relief where you really didn't clear your mind out which is what mental rest is it's kind of trying to get the mind to that quiet place you just replace the noise with some other noise and so whether it be your head noise you know where you're going over um your to-do list or your you know whatever it is that you were thinking about You've now replaced it with something else that's just keeping your mind active. Always think about it like this. You know, if the mind's a river, most of our minds look like somebody's dropping pebbles every five seconds. It's rippling, rippling. It's nonstop. At some point, you want your mind to get to where it's quiet, Mm -hmm. where you can actually look in and see a reflection and and get to that point where there's kind of a peacefulness to it. And, you know, the benefit of that is, you know, if you're someone who feels like you have trouble concentrating, you have a hard time remembering Maybe there's new things going on at your office. You're having to learn new equipment and you're not catching it as quick as everybody else. Chances are that's a mental rest deficit because you didn't get dumber. You know, that did not happen. Yeah. It's just, you don't have the capacity anymore because it's your mind is filled with all this other stuff. So it's a process of how do we take all of that noise and quiet it back down so that you can then receive more.
0: Well, I, I, I fe- there, there's I've heard bits and pieces of this from different people, but I feel like I was getting the spirit of this of looking at again I'm going keep repeating them but I'm going to if we look at physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, social, sensory creative, is it fair to say that we have a uh, a bucket of each? We have a, a reservoir uh, we have we have calories in essence, and we only have so many, to burn. And once we have, then they're dormant and we go along kind of back to where we were. Now we're just churning along at this lower level or shallow level of where we could be. I mean, again, I did not, not not that it had to do with my upbringing, but just the culture at the time, It was always more of a no excuses, you just charge on, you just keep going no matter what. And we didn't look at it as, no, I have a finite capacity of creative calories, of emotional calories. And if I am expending them over here or if I have expended, I have to recharge. Otherwise, no wonder. I don't have the capacity to deal with my wife or my kids or a relationship uh, in this way or to deal with the finances or whatever that thing is that instead of trying to push through, I need to step back and rest. And again, it's just you know it. That's why you got the book out. But it's so countercultural. I mean, for a lot of us, it's going to just have to go against the grain of what we think of as common knowledge.
1: Yeah, I always say rest is work. Rest is hard work <laughs> yeah. because I think for many of us we have automatically just kind of lumped rest and sleep up in this big yes. bucket. You know, I'm going to rest. I'm going to go sleep. I'm, go- you know, and it's just all this same thing. And so, so many of us have gone to bed at night, woke up the next morning, and we're still exhausted. Yeah. And so, you got the eight hours. So now what? You know, there's a very desperate situation <laughs> when you are tired all the time and you get the eight hours and you're still tired all the time. And that's where most people come to me that's where most of my patients find me that's how most of my coaching class find me because they are searching on google for tired or rest and they are trying to figure out if i got the eight hours and that's what everybody's telling me i need and it's not working now what mm-hmm. you know how is there no hope at that point because the thing is it's not simply about just that one bucket the physical as you mentioned we have all of these different areas that we can deplete from and where you deplete from may be different today than where you deplete from tomorrow. Yeah. And, you know, and definitely different from other people in your life, your wife, your kids. Everybody is pouring out of these different buckets. And so the, the thing is, you don't have to always be thinking about, oh, I got to get all seven of these. The goal is to make sure that you are pouring back into the place of the greatest deficit, because that's the one that's going to be making you feel bad. And I think, really, honestly, that's where the whole, you know, restquiz.com came from. Um, that was the number one question I got from people. You know, how do I know yeah. what is my rest deficit? Yeah. Because I I can see how all of these seven inter kind of interplay in my life, but how do I know which one's depleted right now? I d- I'm just tired. You know, that's all I know. I'm tired, and so I think that's where that came from. So that people could focus their attention on the area of their greatest deficit and then yes you do need all seven but focus on the one where you're having the trouble right now yeah and then the others honestly start falling into place because those aren't the ones that are making you feel bad they're just ones you need to maintain.
0: And that's where I feel like yeah, my job is to be aware. That is the work of rest. Is, is where do I be? Where am I be, be? Being becoming aware of where I am not at peace, where I'm not getting traction, where I don't feel uh, restored, as you talk about. You know, in every chapter. Speaking of that, in every chapter of the book, or at least going through those initial categories, you have the segment called recognize the risk. Uh, which I really appreciated. And though, uh, Sandra, yeah, speaking of current events and whatnot, I thought as what have you seen, where have you seen the risk increase if I can ask that during right now, we have, you know, COVID. Well, we have as mm-hmm. somebody just uh, told it was Sam Collier, actually uh, a pastor. And he says he feels like we're in a double pandemic. We've got the COVID going on. And then we've recently just had had so much racial you know tensions. We've got these both things yeah. happening right now. So with those and you're looking out here culturally, where do you see the risk increasing?
1: Well, the risk um, increased greatly with social, with sensory, <laughs> sensory okay. rest. Um, when I look at the, the scores, the, um, from the quiz over the past from March until about June, it almost doubled the amount of really? people who were having a higher sensory rest deficit. And the problem with a sensory rest deficit is it makes you more anxious and it makes you more mean. <laughs> so you have no patience, you know, and I think we start, we see that, um, you know, someone types something on social media and it's like, everybody's jumped on top of this.
0: Oh, it's volatile. <laughs> everybody's, <Yeah>. just,
1: <laughs> yeah. everybody's just ready to kind of bite someone's head off. And so I think, you know, the thing with that is a part of that's because a lot of us from March till now, we've been consuming way more news than we've ever consumed ever. I, I know personally, I've never kept up with news as much as I have over these past few months. You know, as a mom mom of kids, I'm like, oh, are we going back to school? Are we not going back to school? (laughs) All of these things that are going on. And so that has been a huge part of it. And then on top of that, then there's this, and depending on people's religious beliefs, there has been this um, increase in emotional rest deficit because we have people afraid to say that they're afraid. Because while my faith's not strong enough, if I say I'm scared, I'm not trusting God enough. I think you have to be able to at least tell the truth about where you're at um, to even get any type of healing from that point on. So, And that has brought its own level of toxicity and that a lot of people are afraid to just say, I'm afraid, I'm scared. This uncertainty doesn't feel good right now. There's no harm in saying that. I think it's actually helpful for many people to say that because then someone else can say, you know what, I feel the same way. We can get through this.
0: Well, I prescribe the daily, you know, look at the news and the daily time in my Bible, just as Zig Ziglar talked about, so I know what both sides are up to. And uh, I I would attest to that. And yet today, looking at the headlines, talk about sensory and just elevating your anxiety. We had uh, the hurricane on the east and devastation Mm -hmm. and people dying. We have the bomb in Beirut that's headline news now that even though we're not there, I mean, it was just, it was, um, it was (laughs) unbelievable. Yeah. Flat out unbelievable. Uh, I, I had a hard time believing it when I first saw it. And then we've got, of course, all the COVID stuff and, you know, for myself with kids and, people I know wondering what's happening with schools and making decisions there. And yet it feels like, it feels like overload. It feels like mm-hmm. a deficit. And, and yet I know the, the struggle even for myself is I generally don't pay a whole lot of attention to the news because I feel like it's negative and it's mostly junk and it's not news. It's just opinion. And yet we have enough. We, yeah. Yeah. Going back to what you said and then the increase that you're seeing since March, you can't ignore it because it does it for the first time, maybe in most of our lives, we have things happening that literally affect our lives on multiple fronts. So it's hard to ignore. And yet, okay. So if we say that we can't ignore it, but here's the fallout. I think as, as you talk about, here's the fall, you know, here's the fallout of it. How can we take affirmative action to deal with that tension right now?
1: Well, I think for many people, they have to start with really seeing where you're at. That's the whole recognize your risk and then evaluate your current position. That's the R&E. Because I think once you evaluate your current position, when I, and I'll use myself as an example, not to offend anyone else. So if I go on Facebook, let's say, and I read someone's post about any of the racial situations that are going on, And automatically, my first response is, let me tell them what I think And I'm going to, you know, hash into this person, kind of all the details of why I think they're wrong. Uh, For myself, what I end up having what I typically do. I start thinking, why am I doing that? Usually it's because I'm already stressed. I'm already anxious. I'm already afraid. I haven't had that conversation with my husband or anyone else to let them know the kind of feelings that I'm having. And so now, the kind of social media realm because there's no face on the other end of the screen. I don't know how my words are going to hit someone. I'm able to say things I wouldn't normally say, maybe even harsher than I would normally say them because I don't have to see how it hits you once you read it on the screen. So for me, I have to be very mindful of really where am I at when I engage with people? If I'm already knowing that I'm kind of overly stressed, is that a good time for me to engage without a filter? Because on the telephone or if I'm doing a Zoom call, there is no filter. You see if my face kind of goes into I'm not happy with you. (laughs) You know, you can see my mannerisms. You can see if I'm upset. Whereas on a screen, you can't see that. I found for, for particularly with business conversations, if I'm having a conversation with a colleague and and they've made a statement about a situation that I maybe don't agree with. I find that it is safer for me to actually do a Zoom call than to email them back or to have a phone call. Wow. Because we're probably going to end a a good relationship over a misunderstanding because it is so easy for for the conversation to go wrong just because we can't see that personal touch of just voice inflections, uh, uh, the smile or frown on a face. Yeah. Those things are necessary for us to really have really healthy relationship conversations and I think with all of the toxic things that are going on in the world right now, we have to understand the power of what I call social rest is really the rest, the presence. Because the, in the presence of someone who who you feel you have a relationship with, there is a different dynamic than uh, when you're face to face, or you know, face to Zoom, than when you're doing it on a com- um, email or just on the telephone.
0: Yeah, how many bad social media posts happen at 11 o'clock after Netflix with a, wa- a glass of wine or two that shouldn't happen, that we should turn the Internet off at that point? Well, you just said something, though, that addressed the question that I was going to ask. And in our current times and in, in crisis and tensions right now, you said since sens- so in the te- in the in the in the test results, you're seeing sensory as doubling as increasing. Now, you just mentioned social as another primary one. Mm-hmm. When we look at, well, I guess any of them, you know, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. But when we look at COVID and race right now as the, the leading, you know, over the past months, the leading issues, where else are they taking a primary toll? And even if you want to get more specific than just saying, oh, mental or emotional or spiritual, where are they? And I don't know if it's fair to ask that question because maybe they're separated. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe they're separated one just in general, but I would think they'd have to be amongst the races as well of how people are being um, are are being worn out uh, in in these areas. So speak to that, if you would.
1: Well, I think one that was really interesting to see that I honestly didn't necessarily expect um, was in June when we had all of the issues that were coming up specifically around race. Um, May, June time frame when all of that was happening, was that not just the social or the sensory, but it was the emotional part of it. Okay. Because, you know, with emotions, I talk about kind of being authentic yeah. and being able to share what you really feel. But well, what I started getting people kind of writing me about saying, well, what if you feel like what you feel is not politically correct or, or socially acceptable? Sure. You know, because... I mean, we have to be, I grew up in the South and I live in Alabama. So you know, racial relations and tensions is not something that's new to me. I mean, I live in an area where this is kind of where a lot of it all kind of started in the US as far as seeing it flush out. And so I think when I think about these conversations, my take is that it is healthier to be able to have an honest honest conversation with someone when we know what the ground rules are. And so whenever I have a conversation with a friend, and I know we're going to talk about hard things that may not be, you know, things that are they're not fun, it's not going to feel good, but it's a conversation that needs to be had, that we set some ground rules. And I think that's a part of that emotional rest when you're having emotional rest with people who are not your therapist, your, your counselor, or your friend but you're having a real conversation with someone who you want to be very honest and truthful about where you're at, yeah. is to set some ground rules, you know, to, to be hard to offend. You know, we're, we're entering this as two adults and we're gonna have this conversation about why I feel the way I feel and why you feel the way you feel. And we're gonna do it in a way where these are the five ground rules and yeah. set those ground rules before you even open your mouth and have any further conversation. And some of the, the ones that are that I think are necessary is that we're gonna we're going to respect each other's feelings. If it gets where I am offending you, let me know. Because sometimes we don't know when we're offending someone else. You know, if you grew up in a certain culture, that may just be how you talk. You don't know yeah. that someone doesn't like it. And so to have some of those ground rules kind of in place and, and before having these conversations can help protect that need for emotional rest. Because I think particularly in a lot of churches. A lot of churches have come under fire. You know, if they are all one race in one church and all one race in another church, how do the churches come together? And and those are hard conversations, but they're hard conversations that need to be had. And it's going to require a level of emotional rest and emotional kind of honesty that I think many of us have never even dreamed of, of getting to, but it's where we have to go if we're going to see any improvement.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, in the business world, especially in regards to the racial tensions I have seen, nobody's immune. Either you're going to make the decision and feel the responsibility to say something. I don't want to paint it as a negative, or you're just going to make the decision that you need to to not, you need to to totally ignore it for whatever reason. And I don't want to make that because I have, I would tend to think about that negatively, but I've heard some things from some certain places. I go, okay, you know what, where you guys are, I get that. It makes sense to some degree, but either way, it's an emotional expenditure and a hard decision and that you talking about authenticity, uh, amongst emotional, uh, gosh, just, just your emotional levels. Wellness is one that I relate to. We even talked about that. People asking about that. How do I deal with the uh, authenticity or the emotional wellness of myself when I feel like I can't, I can't be authentic because it wouldn't be politically correct. That's a man. That's a that is an absolute truth. And I'll, I'll have to say, I feel that even on these shows that I have a responsibility to address certain things, but my goodness, it's a tension because I'm not mm-hmm. smart or wise enough to deal with everything well enough and professionally enough and politically correct enough. And so we're all walking that fine line. It feels like, but yeah, the realizing the emotional, I, again, I just, that's why you're on the show. I, I so appreciate how you pulled these things out and, you know, coming back to just rest overall, you brought me again to the perspective that I have to admit is difficult for me. If I had been Jesus with three years to go out there and do my thing. Man, I would not have been thinking about rest, which is why, of course, I'm obviously not that guy. (laughs) I would not have been thinking, man, we can't. We're going to burn the midnight oil. We need some amphetamines. We're going to keep rolling here. And he was constantly pulling them away to rest. And I want to find pride in that and hold that. up, Kind of like the busy thing. No, I'm not busy. No, I can talk to you right now. And no, I'm I'm actually just resting. What are you doing? I'm just chilling out. I'm hanging out. I'm I'm getting recovery. I'm doing renewal uh, is... Again, it's so countercultural, which is why you're here, because we need this charge. And I got to admit, yeah, talking about, I don't know if this is politically correct or not, but being in the profession that you are elevates that. I like hearing it come from people like you, from Dr. Uh, Lee Warren, where we're talking about spiritual aspects and deeper aspects and calling us away to rest. Because you're looking at it and you deal with the void of that every single day in acute clinical You know, arena that we can't ignore, uh, which is, well, that's why everybody needs to read your book, Sandra. (laughs) bottom line.
1: Well, I love that you brought up Jesus because I think he gave some of the best examples for how to rest. As you know, I do an entire section where I go through each of the types of rest and talk about how he did rest in each of these seven areas. And I think I think that is the hope that any leader has, yeah. is that really to lead well, to lead at the level of, of being um, the type of leader people want to follow. <laughs> you yes. know, you have to really understand the value of rest and how important it is, not just for you, but for your team to really call out the best in your team requires a leader who understands when their team actually is becoming rest depleted because you can't ask your team to do more than they have the capacity. For. And that's what a lot of companies have been doing. And so that's that's one of the, my joys right now is helping um, really organizations try to revamp up their team to be able to understand how to be more efficient and more personally productive by just being more intuitive and more aware of their own rest deficits.
0: Gosh, I just I want people to hear that. Maybe that's a great anchor for this. That you hear a, a charge right there from from Sandra on having your employees be able to do better work, uh, better work, deeper work, more productive work. And we're hearing that more. That I know if I'm rested, I could do more than two hours than I can in eight hours if I'm just trying mm-hmm. to slog it out. But again. Countercultural. Well, again, that's why you're here. Thank you. Thank you for doing what you've done to get the message out, uh, to bring this book out. It is. It feels like a book to study. I, I actually looked at it as as a relevant, ongoing kind of a devotion and check in to go through. And go. How am I doing? Where am I aware of my status, and where do I need to address it? So, just thank you for bringing your 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 heart, your insight, and your time to us today, Sandra.
1: That was my pleasure. Thank you.
0: So, where do you need to rest in order to recharge and be at your best? Again, I really encourage you to think about this for a minute and what you can do maybe over the next few days, this weekend, to fill yourself up. Uh, take Sandra's rest quiz and again, check out her new book and see all she has to help you with by going to IChooseMyBestLife.com. Uh, coming up in Episode eight twelve goals so big they scare you part two in episode eight ten Tom Ziegler and I responded to comments to the question I posted who has a big goal maybe bigger than you honestly feel capable of maybe big enough you're not even comfortable sharing it publicly if, even with yourself uh, and there were just so many good responses and there are so deep incredible stories and testimonials that are so inspiring that we continued on in this next show till then folks thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance together.